Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12, we'll be reading from verse 27 through 36. There are other things you could be doing on Friday night, and I'm glad we're here together because there were other things that Jesus could be doing on his Friday night when he instead went to the cross and died for our sins. John 12, 27 through 36 represent the last public words of Jesus before he entered his passion. The curtain closes shortly after this scene and opens up on his way to the cross. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. One of the interesting things about the political debate season is how awkward and normal it is for a politician to be answered a asked the question and then to answer, it seems, a completely different question. When I was a bit younger, I thought most of them just didn't know what they were doing. Did they not hear right? That may be indeed true in some cases, though with a little age, I can at least be appreciate something of the game of chess they're playing with the camera and the media. Uh, it's still a bit tacky and it can be discrediting. And sometimes I actually don't think they hear the question. But if you've read the Gospels, you know that it seems like Jesus does this kind of thing from time to time. Does it not? Did he hear the question? Because that's not the question that they asked. I assure you, however, he knows exactly what he was doing. One such instance of conversational dissonance comes right before our passage in John 12, 20. Some Greeks have come to town to worship. No unusual occurrence, especially if you're reading through this book. Greeks being shorthand for Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to worship. They ask if they could see Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go both tell Jesus. There are some Greeks here who would like to see you. Can they see you? Jesus says in verse 24, sorry, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he gets into agriculture. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What was Jesus even talking about? And even if we knew, they didn't have anything to do with whether or not he was interested in seeing some Greeks who came to town to talk to him, to visit with him. A seed falling under the ground, does this have anything to do with a few Greeks wanting to see Jesus? Well, it does, as we'll see. Our text this evening brings us to the closing moments of Jesus' public ministry. As I said, the curtain will close and it'll open back up with Jesus on his way to the cross. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples on the eve of his arrest. But in this brief and final interaction with the crowd, we see two sides of Jesus' soul. We see two sides of Jesus' cross. And we see two sides of Jesus' call on every man and woman. So first, two sides of Jesus' soul. On the one hand, Jesus is a troubled soul. His own words. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, agitated, conflicted, horrified. Jesus was in his soul. He's not faking this. He's not playing this. He is feeling this all the way down. This man, Jesus, this man, Jesus, is in great distress. And he says in verse 27, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He does not like what he's about to face. He doesn't want to face this. He's not a stoic, unemotional figure. He's a human in the fullest sense of humanity, though he is also divine. He considers and may even outright here ask God to save him. What from exactly? We're told it's the hour. He said to his mother at the wedding of Cana, my hour has not yet come. And seven times in the course of the gospel of John, he has signaled the hour as a reference point. The hour has not yet come. When my hour comes, when the hour comes, you cannot miss it. Now the hour has come. I'll reference it five more times after this interaction. Everything in the story keys off the timing of the hour. That is the time that was promised. But this is more than an hour of his death. That is what it is. Scary as that is, he would face the thing, though, that leads many people in their human frailty to actually choose death over life. This was the hour of his rejection. His rejection by the people, the crowds, would deliver him over to Pilate. Pilate, who would wash his hands of Jesus' blood. And put it on the crowds. It was not politically expedient for Pilate, who knew that Jesus was innocent, nevertheless, to keep him from death. The crowds would pick Barabbas over Jesus. How's that for rejection? They'll pick a murderer over you. He'll be rejected by his people, the Jews, to whom he came. He'll be rejected by his own disciples. The start this started to set in in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew records this in Matthew 26. Jesus is sweating blood. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus was praying with loud cries and tears. He asks his disciples to pray for him, but they're sleeping. Asks them again to pray, and they sleep. But more, Jesus will be rejected by his father. Yes, later he will pray, my God, my God, Why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus' soul is troubled. 
He does not want to go to the cross. It is hard. It is horrifying. And he is staring it in the face. But there was more to Jesus' soul than distress. On the one hand, Jesus had a troubled soul. On the other hand, he had a determined soul. He didn't come down here for self-preservation. He is driven by a purpose greater than his own self-preservation. If Jesus were chiefly about staying out of trouble, he never would have entered Mary's womb. This is not some divine experiment or curiosity gone terribly, terribly wrong. And now he's stuck. Jesus knows what he's doing. And that's why he doesn't finally and only pray for salvation from this hour. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And what purpose for which he came to this hour? What's the purpose greater than the pain he is about to face? We hear it in an alternate prayer in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. In the Garden of Gethsemane, not recorded in this book, Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this sounds a whole lot like it. No surprise, Jesus was in anguish on multiple occasions as he approached his death. There were many things that he came to do. This is at the bottom of them all. That is the glory of his Father. This is what Jesus wanted the very most. This is why he performed signs after turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, signaling that he is bringing the new creation. This, the first of his signs, John writes, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. It's why he left his friend Lazarus to die before he would raise him for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. It's what he wanted everyone to be clear on. When Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. Jesus is obsessed with the glory of his father and his own glory mingled with his. And it's what he prayed for to the father in John 17 chapters later, but hours later after our passage when he writes, says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. And how does God answer Jesus' prayer here in our passage, John chapter 12? He answers it audibly. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. One thing God will not do is compromise on his glory. One thing Jesus will not do is compromise on his father's glory. And God speaks to him a word from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. His soul is troubled, but he's determined for the crosses where God and the son will be glorified. This voice from heaven, if you can even imagine it, no doubt was comforting for Jesus, but it was not ultimately for Jesus. How did the crowd respond when they heard it? Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered and others said an angel has spoken to him. They weren't exactly picking up what God was putting down from the skies. And it's no surprise that the voice of God would have the sound of thunder. Sinai comes to mind. 
But why could they not pick up on the definition in God's voice? Was God eating a sandwich while he was talking? How is this? Some hear and some don't. Does Jesus have super ears that can pick it up? No, God did not have food in his mouth. The people had sin in their hearts and therefore plugs in their ears. Their inability to perceive these words is a parable of their spiritual deafness. To some, whatever God might say, it's all just a racket. Same is true today. To others, they'll give credit for this being something meaningful, even spiritual, but it's not God. It's an angel in this case, or has some other supernatural explanation, but not the God of Scripture. The scene of confusion is a parable of how unbelief works, and it still works this way. What is going on in Jesus' life before them and in his death to come is utterly incomprehensible to the world around him that looks on. As they look on Jesus' death, it does not look like what's happening is actually happening. It does not look like what it really means. And that's why we have the word of God to tell us what's really happening on the cross. And of course, Jesus had spoken all about it up until this point. God can speak plain as day through the preaching of his gospel even today, and it is merely racket without ears to hear, or at best, spiritual noise to those who do not believe. I pray you do. But this thunder, while comforting to Jesus, was not ultimately for Jesus, as we've said. Verse 30, Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. This noise from heaven, guys, that was for you. And what's the meaning of the thunder from heaven? God had not spoken audibly often in Jesus' ministry. This is the only instance of God's audible voice breaking through from heaven in the Gospel of John. There are two other occasions we find throughout the Gospels, including the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he says about the same thing at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. Epic moments, in other words. God speaks from heaven. What does this mean? Three times total. What should they have heard or perceived from God's voice from heaven? Verse 31, Jesus tells us, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John adds his own commentary here. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so here we see the two sides of Jesus' cross. The two sides of Jesus' cross. God will glorify his name through Jesus' death in two ways. On the one hand, Jesus' cross brings judgment. Judgment to the world and to Satan, the ruler of the world. Which sounds like an awfully nice point in a sermon on Good Friday, but if you think about it, it's just a little nuts. The cross looks about as much like God judging the world and Satan like a man with a gun to the back of his head or a man hanging from a noose, or a man receiving a lethal injection. Because that's what the cross is. It is no symbol of victory. It's no symbol of strength. It's a symbol of defeat and weakness. In fact, pick your favorite execution method. It doesn't look like anything like beating your enemies. It looks like being killed. And kids get this. Friend AJ has been speaking in his home this week to his 
son about the cross and Jesus' death. Why doesn't he get off the cross and fight those bad guys? The little guy says. Great question. And in a sense, a child is going to perceive the insanity and the upside downness of Christianity a little better because it's fresh to their ears. But doesn't any little child know who's watched any cartoon at all that the way that the bad guys lose is by getting beat by the good guys and the way the good guys win is not by laying down and getting killed. What is Jesus, Lord of the universe, doing on a cross being killed? This seemed obvious enough even to those listening to Jesus. He's claiming to be the Messiah But he just said he's going to be killed. And the crowd says, verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They're right there. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? They heard him right. Lifted up. Like the most obnoxious euphemism in the universe. Lifted up. Or crucified. Lifted up off the ground. Crucified. They heard him right. He's speaking about Not only that he'll die, but the way that he'll die. And they don't get it because the son of David, who is supposed to save, will live and rule forever. How does death figure in to living and ruling forever? How does being put down by Rome figure in to living and ruling forever? This is a different kind of story. And there is more to this cross. The key to understanding rightly the other side of the cross is is the other side of the cross. On the one hand, Jesus' cross brings judgment. On the other hand, it brings salvation and in a particular way. Verse 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said he'll judge the world and cast out Satan. And when he is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. Jesus is saying, when I'm lifted up to die, I will be granting eternal life. The cross is a kind of Trojan horse. Jesus will let his enemies have their way with him, but in doing so, Jesus will have his way with his enemies. And how? We have a hint of this in the background to the imagery of being lifted up. Being lifted up isn't just a spatial reality, but a theological reality. The prophet Isaiah spoke of a Messiah to come, a servant, and he said of the servant this, he shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted in Isaiah 52, 13. And you'd think, yeah, that doesn't sound like crucifixion. And it doesn't sound like crucifixion. It sounds like exaltation. Lifted up. Jesus was lifted up. You think, yes, he ascended to the father's right hand. He, He was enthroned. He is exalted. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Earlier in Isaiah, Jerusalem, it said, would be lifted up, a sign of a new creation, the exalted city where the Lord is. The Lord was high and lifted up in his temple in Isaiah 6, but here the servant is lifted up. Isaiah speaks of this character that will come, and a perfect son, an Israelite, who will come and serve God perfectly where Israel has failed. And he says, this one will be high and lifted up, but Only a verse later, he says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. The savior that Isaiah describes is high and lifted up, but marred and mangled and maimed. And he goes on in Isaiah 53 to describe this very one who's high and lifted up. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrows and acquainted with grief. Remember how our passage opened. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that goes before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah is talking about the one who is innocent, who will suffer for his people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. He poured out his soul. And we're watching Jesus do that in John 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, rejected. Yet he bore the sins of many. Here is how the New Testament authors talk about what happened on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, for, the sake, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And listen to this from the book of Hebrews on how Jesus' death works for Satan's judgment. How is it that Jesus' death is a judgment on Satan? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's through death he destroys the devil. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So when you look to the bloody cross, do you see a dying bloody man? Because he is a dying bloody man. But do you see a dying and bloody man only? Flesh and blood? You might come to church from time to time, but the cross doesn't really figure into your daily life and relationship with God. Is Christ functionally just a bloody man and a cross for you? Or do you see God, the son who took on flesh and blood for you, for you, and is dying a propitiation for sin, that is a payment for sin, suffering the sin payment you deserve, a payment that takes away fear of death. That's a big deal. That'll change your life. We're subject to lifelong slavery to a fear of death. And Jesus takes away the fear of death because he takes away guilt on the cross. A payment that takes away our fear of death and destroys death and therefore the one who has the power over death, the devil. We were his and he was our master and he was our ruler. But by paying for our sins and snatching us away, Satan is himself judged. Every one of us born a prisoner on death row. We know it's coming to us. We know we deserve it. We fear it. But when Jesus takes the chair, our prison doors swing wide open and the prison warden is crushed. That's why we can say to one another, remember with Paul, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, brothers and sisters, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nails our record of debt to the cross. You've got a debt of sin. You are crushed by it. And you have guilt, and so you fear death because of it. 
and you're a slave to that fear. But God takes the record of your debt that is the ground of your fear, your guilt. He puts it on the cross and nails it there with Jesus and it's gone. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, he continues. That's how it works. Jesus was lifted up so that we might be let go and he was killed so that we might live. And in all of that, he's executing a judgment on Satan. The cross brings judgment and it brings salvation. It brings judgment through salvation and it brings salvation through judgment. And so when this crowd heard the voice from heaven say, I will glorify it, they should have connected the dots to see that everything Jesus promised would come and that God had promised in the Old Testament scriptures would come was coming about right now. So here's the question for you. How can you be on the right side of this equation? There's two sides of the cross. Uh, One side is judgment. One side is salvation. How can you be on the right side of this? The happy side. It may not be the question you're asking today, but it is the question whose answer you need. The crowd wasn't asking that question. They were hung up on how the Messiah could be killed. They had not read Isaiah 53 like we did or or in the manner in which we did. But how can there be a more important question? This is the miracle worker Jesus in front of him. This is the one whom God speaks to from the sky. The question is, how can his being lifted up to the cross be your salvation and not your judgment? When he says, judgment is coming into the world, I'll be lifted up and I'll draw them into myself. The next question is, how can I be on the right side of that? Are we safe here? This sounds urgent. And perhaps you think the answer has already been given when Jesus said he'll draw all men to himself. That word all. All means all, right? And what does it mean that judgment is coming into the world if his cross saves everyone automatically and without exception? All means without distinction, all kinds of people, every kind without distinction, men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. If you believe today, that includes you. Look at verse 20 on your Bibles. Notice that this entire section began with a trigger, a trigger when the Greeks showed up to visit with Jesus. The Greeks, in other words, non-Jews or Gentiles, this trigger is bigger than it sounds. Jesus is going international. The nations have showed up to Jesus for salvation. This was part of God's plan all along, a plan focused in Abraham and his children, the Jewish people. But through this people, it was for the world. And this Jesus, a Jew, would bring salvation to the world. The Greeks, the Gentiles, have arrived for salvation. And when he hears the word, there are some Greeks here to see you, Jesus, He knows that it's his hour. And so he starts to speak about a seed going into the ground and dying. And so he begins to speak about saving your life to lose it. And so when the crowd asks about how it is that the Savior can die, they ask an urgent question. But Jesus, now at the end of his ministry, has given them all that they need. He does not answer that important question. He asks, he answers a more urgent question. How can I be on the right side of this cross? Verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light 
that you may become sons of the light. They have asked a good theological question. It may have just been tedious. They may have just been picking. What they needed was a call to believe. And here we have the two sides of Jesus' call. The two sides of Jesus' call. Darkness. You can't see where you're going. Life and death. A mystery. But sin is safe in the darkness. Eventually, it overtakes you, Jesus says. Light. The way is clear. There is no mystery in life and death. Your sin is exposed, but that's a good thing because Christ has taken it and he is your light and your salvation. Light and darkness, you choose, Jesus says to the crowd. And so he says to you through his word today, light and darkness, you choose. What does it mean to choose light? Believe in the light, he says. That's been the message in John's gospel all along. It started this way in chapter one. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the light. The darkness overtakes any of us after too long and in death, but no darkness overcomes the light of Jesus. Get yourself under his light. You might look at the cross and hear thunder and that's all. Maybe that's you. You hear the preaching of the gospel and it is thunder. It's just racket. Well, it probably happened. And if it did, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It's just thunder. If he really was God, well, he would have come down to fight the bad guys, obviously. The story Christians have made up is just an elaborate shot at salvaging their savior. And a lot of clowns have believed it since. Or you might look at the cross and see something merely spiritual going on, like some in the crowd hearing the voice of God. You might hear the sound of the voice of angels. You're not too cynical, but Jesus, as the only way to the Father, Jesus suffering for our guilt is a little, little too much, a little too much. But Jesus did not take on flesh and blood and the sorrow of his life and death for no purpose. And Jesus did not stay on that cross for no purpose when he could have called on a legion of angels for his rescue. He died to glorify his father's name and to draw all people to himself. He definitely died and he definitely died on purpose and for a purpose. If you've come here with a question about Jesus that was not answered, that's okay. People on this page didn't get their questions answered either. And even for those Greeks, they wouldn't get to see Jesus because actually Jesus had some work to do yet. Jesus had to go die. Uh, perhaps they believed later. As it is, we're on this side of the cross and we have it all. We have even more. And so we're called to believe. The light will be with you for a little while, he said, which is to say, this is an urgent thing. You will not have forever to believe. And we hear it the same way. The time is short. Make your choice quickly. Believe in the light. And if you have believed, hear Jesus' last words as his ministry closes to you. In verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so if you believe this evening, this message, this cross, and no salvation, Jesus' path and even Jesus' pain is our pattern. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a savior whose soul was troubled, who was sorrowful, who bore our griefs because we could not bear it and live. We thank you for a savior that stared down the cross and experienced in his staring down the cross its horror and then stepped into it and was rejected by the crowds, his people, even his disciples who fled and you. For our sake, he bore our sins. Father, we thank you for Christ and we thank you for the cross. We pray that we too would lay our lives down and count them as nothing for his sake. It's in his name we pray, amen.